This is out of Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 4, or 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It is not from your ourselves that it is a gift from God, not by works, so no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Jesus Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You may be seated. Well, good morning. For those of you who may not know me, my name is Tim Troughton. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer Church, and we welcome you this morning. We are excited to be able to jump in to Ephesians chapter 2. This is one of my favorite passages in the scriptures, and I hope that as we engage over it this morning, uh, the Lord will build us up in understanding who he is and what he's done for us. Uh, before we dive in, though, I do have a couple of announcements. Um, first, in your bulletin, you'll notice that there is a flyer here that talks about a church barbecue coming up on the 27th. Uh, so do mark this down. It's going to be at 5 o'clock. Um, we do ask that you would bring a side and or a dessert, but all of the meat and all of the drink and everything else will be provided. Uh, there'll be dunk tank. There'll be all kinds of uh, inflatables and stuff. So it is a great time for us to come together as people and just enjoy an evening of fellowship uh, feel free to invite any friends, family that maybe don't regularly attend church, just to get to know some folks, and it'd be a chance for us to just minister to those around us. Uh, secondly, uh, we are nearing the end of the summer. It is quickly approaching when kids go back to school and everything kicks back up. Uh, for the next two weeks, uh, the 20th and the 27th, uh, so start just thinking about this, um, we're going to have tables out uh, in the foyer area that are going to highlight a lot of the things that are going on this fall. Um, so if you want to sign up for Bible studies, if you want to sign up for life groups, if you want to sign up to volunteer for things like hospitality or children's ministry, you'll have many opportunities next week. So uh, just be prepared to be thinking about how you want to engage this fall in the areas that you'd like to take part, and you'll have every opportunity to ask questions and sign up for those. And then lastly, uh, if you can look on the piano over here, we have a white rose. Uh, that means we're celebrating another birth. The Lord has uh, blessed us profusely uh, in 2023. Um, I think we are probably at well over a dozen now children that have been born so far, um, and we have more coming. Uh, but this uh, is in uh, honor of Adeline Grace Preston, who was born on July 27th uh, to both Wyatt and Kylie. Uh, and so let us be uh, just in prayer for them, for being parents and figuring out how to uh, care for Adeline. And so we are excited uh, for them as well. Let's join together in prayer and dive into the text together this morning. Father, we thank you that uh, you uh, do bring new life into this world. 
Um, and so we do pray for uh, the Prestons. We pray that you would um, give them wisdom as parents to, to love and raise Adeline well. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would bring her to faith um, as she grows up and that uh, they as a family would seek after you uh, and that they would know you and that you would know them. Uh, Lord, as we enter into your word today, we pray uh, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and in our minds, uh, that we would see the truths in the text, that we would not just be reminded about you, uh, but that we would be drawn to you, uh, that we'd be drawn in deeper relationship to you, and that ultimately as we are transformed uh, by your word, uh, that we would be known more and more by you as well. Uh, Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're pretty much just going to be sticking in Ephesians chapter 2 today, so if you've got your Bible or your phone, uh, I do invite you, if you haven't turned there, to turn there. Uh, Tim Keller, a pastor who recently passed away, uh, famous in a a New York church, once wrote an article on the centrality of the gospel. And in this article, he he quotes uh, from an ancient church writer by the name of Tertullian, and here's what Tertullian said. It says, Jesus, just as Christ uh, was crucified between two thieves, so this doctrine of justification, this idea that because of the death of Christ, we have made, been made right in God's eyes, justification, um, this doctrine of justification is ever crucified between two opposite errors. And Keller goes on to name those two errors moralism and relativism. Moralism is the idea that we are generally acceptable to God because of things that we have attained or our good works. Now, some moralists are very religious. Perhaps many of us in this room lean toward being moralists. I don't know. We view God as holy. We view him as just, right? We have good theology. But we struggle with who we are before him. Perhaps we see ourselves as either horrible sinners who can never measure up to God's standard, which is sort of true. Um, Or perhaps we see ourselves as pretty good people who can check all of the necessary boxes in order for God to see us as pretty good people and just right for him. And in either case, we don't quite understand the gospel if we're leaning one side or the other. There are other moralists who aren't religious at all, but rather think that if there is a God, He's going to weigh us on the totality of our good deeds versus our bad deeds, right? You put your, your deeds on a scale and maybe he even weights the scales that good deeds are, have more value than our bad deeds. And many of them think that in spite of all of that, God's going to then grade on a curve too and that we're going to be okay. Um, that he's going to see us as good people and he is going to bring us into his kingdom. And perhaps some of you in this room are sitting there today as well. Relativism is the idea that there are no truly absolute ideas, no truly absolute morals, and no true expectations from God if there even is a God. Relativists believe that the individual or perhaps even a culture decides what's right and what's wrong. And if God cares, his love is going to overcome anything missing in how we end up falling short of his expectations for us, so that in the end, we're gonna be okay before him. The problem with both of these groups, and I would argue even us oftentimes, is that they misunderstand the reality of our dire circumstances before the Lord. Our situation is so dire that that without him moving, 
we're going to be led to his wrath. These same people also under, underestimate the overwhelming love of God, which actually leads him to go from leaving us in that state to bring us to him through Christ so that we are no longer separated from him, no longer dead to him. So let's consider two different days. You wake up, you have a moving prayer time, you feel like God really spoke to me this morning. You know, you, you open up your scriptures, and you're like, man, I have never seen that before. I'm gonna do that today and the Lord is gonna bless me. And you go out and you get, you get to do that. You, you wake up, you see your kids, you knock parenting out of the park. You go to work, you do everything right, you're doing a great job, you're talking to people about Jesus and you actually close the day by leading someone to Christ. Not a bad day, right? I'd sign up for that in a heartbeat. But the next day, you wake up, your alarm didn't go off. You have to be to work at eight o'clock and it's like 7.30. On your way to work, because you're going so fast, you cut off multiple cars and maybe a few things that come out of your mouth that you wouldn't normally say. Uh, and your frustration of the day not going the way you would like, you tell off your kids for doing something really simple and the idea of actually connecting with the Lord isn't even a thing you're interested in doing. Pretty bad day, right? Do you think that one day you're more right before the Lord than the other? That he sort of looks at both of your days and says, well, on this day you're acceptable to me, but on this day, ah, I don't know. In the end, of course not, right? And this is why we need to be reminded of the gospel. And so our passage today as we come here will remind us that because we are all born dead to God in our trespasses and sins, we can only be made alive. If you want to talk the theological term, this is the idea of being justified or being made right in God's sight. We can only be made alive to God by his mercy. And if it's by mercy, it has absolutely nothing to do with our good works. And so as we look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we're going to focus on three aspects. The first is what it means to be dead in sin. The second is how we're to be made alive by God. And lastly, what's the purpose of this transformation that God makes in us? So let's dive into the text. Verse 1 starts off. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. So let's note a couple things that are going on here. The first thing is, is that Paul is actually talking to believers in Christ. I mean, if you just were to flip your page back to 1-1, one, one, says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus. These are believers. These are people who know Christ. These are people who have been transformed already. And he says, you were dead. Note also the, the past tense verbs here. He says, you were dead the way you used to live when you followed. This is no longer true of them, but it, there was a time in their life when it was. Now, there's a little bit of debate about this passage, and some argue that verses 1 and 2 were actually speaking to Gentiles, and all Gentiles are is people who aren't Jews, and that he then moves on to talking about Jews a little bit later. But even if that's true, in verse 3, he goes from saying you to us. 
among whom we all once lived, gratifying the passions of our flesh, right? It's not just that there's a you out there that were dead and there's a group that somehow was an in-group and they're okay. He's like, no, like you were dead and oh, by the way, we did the same thing. There's not one person who wasn't dead. Therefore, all of us know that we start our lives as dead to God. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the, the reality of sin And one of the things that we were reminded of as we looked at Genesis chapter three is that our sin leads to death. And so when Adam sinned, his relationship with God was broken. He was meant to be able to walk with God in the garden. He was meant to have a direct relationship with God. But when Adam sinned, that was broken. That relationship was sundered. And unless God did something, we would be forever apart from God. So there was a a spiritual death sentence over Adam, right? He was never going to be present with God unless God moved. But there was also a real death sentence over Adam. Like Adam was not meant to die. He was meant to be able to live forever uh, with God and enjoy his presence. But instead, there comes a day, I think Genesis says, he lived to be about 900 plus years old and he died. And so all of us actually start our lives in the same way. Paul goes on in verse two and three to tell us a little bit more about this reality. He says that we followed the ways of this world. So one way you could look at this passage is that the world is is full of the walking dead. Uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes I kind of enjoy the, the zombie story genre. I don't know why, but there's something about it that I find appealing. And I often refer to this as the zombie passage in the Bible because we're all the walking dead at the start. And if you've followed any of those stories, if you're aware of zombies, they're, they're this horrible, broken mockery of humanity. It's a mockery of creation, right? Everything about a zombie is saying it's something that has a similarity to what it means to be alive and yet there's nothing about them that is actually living. <clears throat> All they are, are things that eat life and destroy life. And the downside of every zombie story is there is absolutely no hope for the walking dead. There is no cure. There is nothing that will bring you from the undead state to the real life state. There's nothing that can make you right. And if you look around and follow the news and everything else that we might see in this world, isn't that sort of what it's like? We're constantly going around and destroying one another, right? And you can look and we see wars all over the world. We see people who kill each other left and right. We see the kind of words that we use toward one another. The interesting thing about social media is really all it's done is it's given us opportunities to think that we're saying things that no one really knows who's saying it, but we can say the worst things in the world to people because I guess we're anonymous. But the words that we use are utterly destructive. We need something from the outside to come in and change our status. Because I've never seen a zombie that's made itself not a zombie. I've never seen a dead person who can get up and walk. Paul goes on to tell us that it isn't just that we followed after the pattern of the world. He says that we actually followed the ruler of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. 
Now, there's a lot of things that we could talk about contextually in this passage. I don't want to get into all of them. Uh, but one of them really is he's, he seems to be pointing toward the person of Satan. That there is a spirit out there that is out to harm you, that is out to lead you astray, that is out to take you and move you away from God. And in doing so, you are not a son of God, but you are a son of Satan. You are a son of disobedience. You are, are against God in all ways. And it's interesting because this is exactly what Satan does back in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. Adam comes to the image bearers of God, people who are, are currently perfect, they've done nothing wrong, and he goes and he says, did God really say? Wouldn't you like to be like God? They already are, they're image bearers. All you have to do is disobey. And he continues to do that to this day. And just as they, Adam and Eve, were deceived by the evil one, we are too. And it's interesting because we live in modern times, and I don't know about you, but about 90% of the time, I really don't think about the existence of Satan. We just don't think about spirits, right? We think about things we can touch and see and all of those things. But Satan is real, and Satan has an impact. But our sin isn't simply because of Satan. It isn't because there's a spirit out there that says, hey, you know what? You should sin. We actually sin because we want to. And Paul goes on to say, in, in the end of verse 3, he says, among whom we once lived, he's talking about the world here, carrying out the desires of the flesh and the mind. That our sin is not only something that the world does, our sin is not only uh, us being tempted by Satan and falling because there's something inside of us this week, our sin is something we do because we like it. We see others in the world, and there is this kind of thing, right, where it's like, we, we often talk about sin, we're like, hey, where's that line? Where can I go to hit that line of sin? It's like, I just kind of put my toe right before it, because I kind of want to experience it, and I kind of want to feel what it's like, because they seem like they're enjoying themselves. But I don't know if I want to cross the line, because that feels like it would be bad. But can I just get close and just taste it just a little bit? Why is it that we want to do that? It's because we like it. And so Paul wants to make it clear that we are just as much dead people as we start as any other person in this world. The, the playing field is leveled, and there's none of us who can make ourselves right before God. As he walks these out, he's really talking about the three great enemies of God's people. Uh, there's the idea of sin, the sin that's in the world and the sin that impacts us, the sin that we take part in. There's the devil, and there's death. These three enemies, he's saying, are currently at work, and you were born into having to fight a war against these three enemies, and you would lose every time if left to your own devices. And the consequence of all of this is that we experience God's wrath. As he finishes up verse 3, uh, he says that we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. And I don't know about you, but we don't often think about the term wrath at all. Uh, and oftentimes we think of it as a negative thing. Uh, but wrath is something that is often a very good thing. Uh, when someone does something that's absolutely wrong, uh, you, know, you, you actually should have some actual strong response to it, that you want to stop it, that you want to to take care of it, that you want to end suffering, all of that leads to this response that has a strong movement, and we call that wrath. Um, it is a proper righteous anger. 
against sin and its work. And if we have not had our sin taken care of, we are under God's wrath. Now what that means is that the moralist who thinks that they're generally good on their own, and the relevist who thinks that they get to find what's actually good, are both absolutely wrong. None of us are moral, according to Paul, and therefore every single one of us deserves God's wrath. We deserve to be separated from him. And if any of that's true for us in this room, that is truly bad news. But Paul doesn't stop at verse three. He moves on to verse four, and I would say that verse four is one of the greatest transitions that happens in all of scripture. Uh, It takes us from the very bad news to this very good news. He says, you were dead to sin and your trespasses, but God. And before I read any other word, just the, the way he writes that, you know something will change. But God. What do we learn about God? The text goes on to say, but God, because of the great love with which he loved us, and because of the, the great mercy, being rich in mercy, being lavish in his mercy, made us alive. I don't know about you, but going from death to life sounds like a fantastic thing. Most of us in this room have probably experienced some sort of death in our lives. And the the sadness and the brokenness and the pain that goes with that. And we all yearn for life. And God says, here's what I've done to you. I've taken you from death to life. And we can't miss this because in the, in the original Greek, in the actual like, text that we're translating from, verses one through five are all one big long sentence. Paul likes to do big long sentences. And the main part of the sentence boils down to this. But God made you alive. God did the work. God took someone who was dead and he made them alive. Picture that I often think of is, you know, if you're, if you go into a morgue and you, you sit on, you see a, a, a body lying there, um, you, know, you just stand there and say, hey, get up. Do you think it can do it? Can it actually get up? It's like, oh, I really want to. I want to get up. I want to get off the table. Well, no. But if someone comes in and says, live, and they have the power to actually make life, they can get up. And this is the picture here, it's, it's God's work. God comes in, he makes us alive. You may have been dead before, but God makes you alive. And the same God who raised Jesus from the dead, so we know he has the power to do so in any way, raised those who believe in him from a living death to a new life. A life that deserves wrath, a life that is separated from God, a life that can have no connection with God to one in which we have absolute connection with God, that we are able to know him, to be known by him, and that we can spend eternity with him. Now, as a quick aside, some will say that if God is really loving, and if God is really merciful, then he won't really have wrath. Like, in the end, he's going to save everybody. Why? Well, because he's loving and he's merciful, and, and we know that loving and merciful people, they just let everything go. But if that's the case, it totally misses the point of how God has to secure our salvation. 
If he was just going to let it go, then why did he have to send Jesus? He's like, no, I had to send my son to die on the cross because my wrath had to go somewhere. And so when I make you alive, I've taken the wrath that you deserve and I've given it to another so that you don't have to experience it. And this is the beauty of what happens in the gospel, the story of how God is naming a people for himself and bringing them back. And because he brings Jesus back from the dead, he makes us, those who believe in Christ, alive in him, even when we're dead, even when we're trespassing and we're sinning. God says, no, now I will make you right. It's not your goodness. It's not your good works. It's not the things that you've done that might please me. It's my pleasure to make you alive. And verses four through six shows us exactly what God has done for us in Christ. In verse five, he starts, he says, he made us alive. I've said it enough, you got it. And I love how Paul seemingly blurts out that this is totally by grace, right? He, this, you know, if you're looking at your text, there's these two little M dashes next to it uh, because I, I really think he's like, God made you alive. By grace, you've been saved. And then he kind of gets back into his argument. It's like, he's just like, I can't even keep it inside any longer because I know what I'm gonna be talking about. It just comes out because of the depth of what it means to be forgiven. Nothing we've done, good or bad, makes us worthy, but God's mercy and his grace and his love does. Verse six tells us that God raised us up with Christ and to be raised with Christ means that just like Christ has a new life from being dead, we also have a new life. And it's true now that we have a new life. We experience the benefits of new life even today, even though we will look forward to dying one day. But it points to the future when we will be risen again, perfect and holy, and will never be able to sin. And our new life means that we now get a relationship with God. This isn't just a a get out of jail free card, because sometimes we sort of turn the gospel into that. That it's like, you know, I've trusted Jesus, I'm saved, so now I can do what I want. Like, this isn't at all what this passage is about. This means now that we have real access to God again. And if you have access to God when you didn't before, that's a real thing. That's a relationship that is far more than just, I don't have to worry about wrath. It says, I now have connection to the person who created the universe, who transforms people, who transforms things, who makes all things new. Further, Paul says in verse six that we're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Now to be seated with Christ in the heavenly realms means that somehow we're currently in the heavenly realms. It's a little bit of a mystery. Not sure what that means, not sure what that looks like. Uh, We are currently present with Christ. This is partly a picture of our perseverance. Uh, If you are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, I don't think somehow you're gonna like leave and go to the, the, the hellish realms. Um, You are now with Christ and he will hold his own to the end. But it also means that somehow we're connected to Christ even when he feels far away. Because I'm sure that there are times in your life where you are in despair, where you're feeling broken, you're asking the question, where is God? And those are real moments, but we need to remind ourselves that if we're seated with Christ, that, that God is present in us through his spirit and with us as we are literally next to Christ And verse seven says that in the ages to come, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace to us through Christ. Now that starts now. The minute that we've come to faith, 
the incomparable riches of God's grace are poured upon us in our forgiveness and all of the ways in which he is working in our lives even today, but it goes on for eternity. And to be lavished for all of eternity with the immeasurable riches of God's grace is a picture of what this passage is all about. It's a picture that tells us that God's grace is abounding over and over and over. This term lavish, right? It's like you're pouring water into a cup and when it's full, you just keep pouring until everything else gets wet. Lavish grace, never-ending grace. Now, the riches of his grace isn't about wealth, although I suppose it's true for some people that that may be true, but it's more about the fact that every day and every moment, God reveals more and more and more of himself to us. More of his wonders, more of his mercy, more of his forgiveness, and the daily presence of his spirit who lives in our hearts and calls us his own. And even more, as one day we're gonna be present with God, physically, visually, tangibly, and experiences grace and kindness forever and ever. That's what it means to be lavished with God's riches. I also believe this is why we love stories of redemption. You know, anytime you you watch movies, you're like, man, I just wanna see this this character turn from being a a bad antagonist or a problematic person to when are they gonna like become good, right? We love these stories. When we hear a story of someone who's a staunch atheist, perhaps like a C.S. Lewis, we get excited because it reminds us that there is a power of God that can change people. If he can take a staunch atheist and turn him into a believer, God can do anything, right? When we see someone come out of a life of drug addiction because Christ has changed their life, we rejoice because it's like pulling back the dark sections of the painting of this world, seeing sin written on our hearts and God saying, but I can do something different. When we see redemption, we see the the masterful hand of our Redeemer, his goodness and his glory, who makes alive all of those who are dead. And we love that story because it's our story. And this brings us to the purpose for this transformation. God does this out of his grace, but he does it for a reason. If you've ever memorized scripture, verses eight and nine of this passage are probably near the top of any scripture memorization list. Bet you if I asked for a show of hands who all has memorized eight and nine, I bet you at least 50% of this room would raise their hand. You were dead, but God made you alive, raised you, and seated you with Christ. But then he goes on to say, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This isn't from yourselves, it's a gift of God, so that no one can boast. So this brings us back to our moralist. All of us can be tempted to use our works as a way to show ourselves as right before God. It's always there. It's like, you know what? I've been pretty good today. I guess if I sin, it's fine, right? Like there's, there's that piece of our psychology that's like, I kind of deserve this because I've been really good all day. And this is like my cookie at the end. But of course, we're missing something if that's our heart. Um, but we kind of stack up all the good things. And in fact, we might even be tempted to cite other scripture. We could go to James chapter two, verse 17, where James says, faith without works is dead to justify ourselves. Well, I guess I gotta have works if I'm gonna have faith. So, so I'm definitely gonna have to make those happen. I'm gonna have to work those up. 
In fact, this was actually part of the struggle of uh, a, a, one of the, the reformers in the 1500s, a guy by the name of Martin Luther. Um, I'm hoping that many of you know who he is, but uh, he ends up starting the Reformation or one of the main voices to start the Protestant Reformation. But before he did that, he was just a monk. And the story of Luther's really fascinating. He was someone who was extremely aware of his sin. And as someone who was trying to be a really good Catholic, he understood that he had to constantly confess his sin. He had to get everything right. He had to make sure every sin was accounted for so that God could forgive every sin. And he had to do his penances and he had to mark off all the checkboxes in order to make sure that God's grace would be able to come to him. He'd often go to his confessor, and all a confessor is is a person that you go and tell your sins to. Uh, He would go to his confessor, and he would confess his sin, and then he'd leave, and about 10 minutes later, he'd come back and say, oh, I forgot some. And then he'd go, and then he'd come back and be like, oh, I just thought of some more. Like, he literally confessed out his confessor, and he's like, dude, you're good. Um, But Luther didn't understand that. In fact, it got to the point where he was trying to, to really get right before God that Luther, Luther late, later responded saying, I was myself more than once driven to the very abyss of despair so that I wish that I had never been created because of his understanding of how much he could not make himself right before God. Love God, I hated him. Luther was so afraid of Christ as a judge that he could never come to, to know him, never come to truly experience him. And yet, in his study of the scriptures, he did come to understand the reality of grace. It transforms his heart. It transforms who he is. And the beauty of this story is that years later, he's writing to one of his protégés, a man by the name of Philip Melanchthon. And and he wrote this idea. He's like, God doesn't save those who are only imaginary sinners. God saves real sinners, right? Uh, This is a a comment people say. He says, Philip, sin boldly. But he doesn't stop there says, but let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice that Christ is victor over sin, death, and the world. Now, it's amazing that someone who was like worried about every single sin that he had ever committed and making sure that every single one was accounted for in the hopes that he'd be right before God, that he then goes to this guy and he's like, Philip, sin boldly. Why? Because you have a bolder savior. the transformation in his heart when he understood grace. And this is the beauty of the gospel. Now, for those of us who might be inclined to trust in our own works, Paul reminds us that the gospel is not dependent on us, but rather the work of God. For those of you sitting in this room and listening online, who in those quiet and honest moments kind of look at your heart and realize that you might never measure up to God's requirements, some of you might be struggling with things like sexual sin, You engage in the world of pornography because you believe that it promises life, but in the end leads you to shame and death. Others might have a deep-seated bitterness against family because of something they did and you're not able to forgive, but you want to. Some of you may have experienced tremendous trauma and instead of understanding that something done to you, you think it's your fault and you carry that shame. But this passage reminds us that we are a new creation. We are no longer dead, but we're living. And isn't that a crazy thought? I mean, we don't always feel like a new creation, right? When we sit in our shame, 
when we feel our sin, we feel so much like the old creation, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. But the good news of this text is that the Lord is doing something with all of that. He's making us alive. He's fixed it all. There's not one drop of our life that the Lord isn't using. And this brings us to verse 10. Verse 10 is the the why of verses one through nine. We oftentimes stop at verse nine because it's so cool to hear. Um, But you you gotta remember that verse 10 is the next part. It's the for this reason, God did this thing. What's the purpose of our good works then? They aren't what save us, but they are one of the reasons why God saved us. As for the last part of our verse, we're told that we are created for good works. As good Christian people, we do a great job of reading Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We're like, it's all grace, baby. We got this. God's done it for us. And that's true. But we often skip verse 10. What's most ironic is some people take Paul and they want to pit him against James. I already did, right? I did that on purpose, by the way. Um, They pit him against James saying, James says you're saved by your works, but Paul says you're saved by grace. It's really funny. Paul's like, No, James, you're totally on point. If you have faith, then good things will follow. Why? Because God created you for these good things. He brought you to life for these good things. Verses one through nine gives us a status. We're alive by God's love and his mercy and his grace, but verse 10 gives us the reason. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. I wanna look at three brief things about this as we close. First, what are good works? I think most simply, good works here are simply obedience to do what God has told us to. And this is what some theologians refer to as the third use of the law. Um, Theologians say that the law has three reasons that God gave it to us. The first is to show us that we're sinners in need of God's mercy, that we were dead. The law points that out to us. The second is the law tells us that uh, there's good laws that you can have out there and there's a good way to live. And if you even try to follow after God's laws, the, the society would be a little better than most other societies. But there's a third reason, and it says this. It says, if God has saved me, my response is to love the work that he's done and to want to do the things for him that he's done. And he's asked, like it's it's like parents, right? Like I want my kids to obey, but I want them to obey not because I told them to, I mean, I'll take it. But I want them to obey because they say, dad loves me. Dad takes care of me. And dad wouldn't have, like, come up with like random rules for no reason. If dad's taking care of me, I'm gonna trust that he has that for a reason. And this is what it means for the third use of the law, that ultimately God loves us and we've been transformed by him, so we want to do what he asks us to do. The second thing here is that our good works were prepared beforehand. Note two things here. This is also the passive voice, and all that means is you don't do the action right? Our good deeds were prepared beforehand by someone else. God did it. Somehow God has already walked out the path of your works. It's kind of like the, you know, you think back to the the Wizard of Oz. What's Dorothy told to do? Follow the yellow brick road. How does she get where she needs to go? Well, follow the road. Um, It's like God has laid out the yellow brick road of our good works, and what do you have to do? You have to walk in them. You put one foot in front of the other and follow after God and God will lead you into the good things that he has for you. And the beauty of that means it's not about us figuring out how to be good, but rather that by God's grace, he gives us the ability 
to do what he asks. And so even our works as we want to try to do them aren't actually about us trying to make ourselves right, but it's us experiencing God's grace as he gives us things in which we can do for him. We aren't the worker in this passage, right? It says we, we aren't the ones who work the good deeds. We are his workmanship. We get to experience every benefit of what it means to be God's people as we just walk out the road that he has already paved before us. And so this isn't a case of us starting out by grace but continuing in our own power, which can sometimes be the case when we think about having to do good things. But rather it's about starting out by grace and continuing in God's power. And that's a relieving thought. Because when you have this idea over your head that I've got to do it right, I've got to be right, it's a scary thing. And this should impact about how we think about even our own works. Sometimes we fall into this idea of total depravity thinking. Again, in a couple weeks ago, last we talked about total depravity and we talked about sin. That because of original sin, we can't truly do good works. And, and while that's partially true, it's real. Um, don't miss our passage here, that you are now a new creation in Christ. Something about you is different than what was before. And Christ has made you for good works that you should walk in. And so somehow God, through his grace and power, is going to help us live out that life that he then has asked us to, to walk into. And he doesn't do this so that we can boast about ourselves. He does this through him so that no one can boast. This isn't about saying, I'm a good person, look at me, I'm great. It's actually saying, we have an awesome God. Look at him. He's great. Look what he's done in me. And then we say to others, and he can do this in you too. And that's an encouraging thought. So as we close this morning, let us be reminded of the goodness of God's love and mercy as he makes us alive in Christ. Not because of anything we've done, but rather what he's done in and for us. As for our good deeds, let us not rely on them to see ourselves as right before God because we'll never be able to do that. We can't make ourselves right before him. But rather let us rest in a Christ who walks out the path for us and prepared it for us that we would walk in them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are saved by your grace that it is not on us to save ourselves, that it is not on us to fix our problem, Lord, but you have fixed every problem that we would ever have in and through Christ. Lord, we pray that as we dwell upon that, we would be, we would be able to assess our own hearts before you, um, that we would come to know what it means to be your children and to follow after you, that we would experience what it means to know your grace and your mercy. And ultimately, Lord, that you would be made glorified through all of the people who you have made alive and the works that you have given them to walk out. Um, we thank you that there, are, there is such a thing as good deeds that we can have before you, uh, but that those are the works that come from someone who has already been graciously saved, um, not something that we have to make sure that we do so that we would make ourselves right before you. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.